Uh, our sermon text today comes from the book of First John. Um, Jim gave us a really good sermon last week on the, the beginning of this section where John reminds the, the people that their central identity is that of children of God. And Jim has turned and look at each other and declare that identity over the people around us and over ourselves. And sometimes it's really easy to say that to other people. You are a child of God, but sometimes it's kind of more difficult to look in the mirror and accept that identity as our own. So it was a really good exercise for me. It made me a little uncomfortable in all the right ways. Um, so we're going to continue in that same section and look for, once John says, remember that you are children of God, from then on in the, the book he addresses his readers as dear children. Really neat little thing that he does there. Um, so when we look at the books of First, Second, and Third John, it's important to know who this John is, and we're not entirely certain, but we kind of know what his job is. It, it seems that John, that John, uh, that his role is something like bishop, or maybe a multi-site pastor is maybe a way we could think about it, that he's overseeing a network of churches and house churches in the area around Ephesus, this major metropolitan area in the ancient Near East, very important uh, Roman city. And the church seems to have undergone a recent season of confusion, of loss, of difficulty, and pain. And now they find themselves in crisis, trying to figure out what this is going to mean, how we put this back together. What do we do now? And so John, like any good pastor, he writes a sermon. And that, that's what these books are. They're these poetic sermons that are sent out to these churches that he cares for. And, and John says in these, if you, we are going to be the kind of people who can survive this, you're going to have to be people who live up to what you say that you believe. You're going to have to return to your core values, uh, to your connection to each other, and your connection to God. And so, picking up on that, that children of God thing, let's look at how, yeah, how this section starts. I'm picking up at verse 7. He says, Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he, that's Jesus, just as Jesus is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning since the very beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin. Because God's seed remains in them, you cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother or sister. Okay, so we need to stop here and address real quick what's going on in these first few verses before we move on. It, uh, it seems that at least part of the problem in this community, in this community of churches, is that they've been dealing with this divergent group of Christians who are convinced that the purpose of Jesus was to bring them secret knowledge that would grant them entrance into heaven. Now, this is obviously a gross oversimplification, but you can understand sort of what's happening here. You see, these people believe that the world is evil, that bodies are evil, that being in a physical body is bad, that the physical realm was at best temporal and unimportant, which led them to some wild and wonky theology and a 
total neglect for Christian living because the only point of life was to discern the secret handshake that you were going to need to give Peter when you got to the pearly gates. That's the whole point of Jesus for this group was secret knowledge. They were living with no regard for the way of Jesus, living a debauched life, seeking their own pleasure and their own advancement at the expense of others with no concern for their community, for righteousness, or for justice. The arrival of this strange teaching seems to have led to crisis, division, and confusion. And this is what John seeks to remedy in this sermon. So when you see, read, hear strong language about those who live in sin versus those who live in obedience to the way of Jesus, that's what's going on here. This is the backdrop for this section. That the Christian life is not primarily spiritual or cerebral. So John, what is the Christian life about? Verse 11, for this is the message that you have heard since the beginning, that we should love one another. This is a reference to John 15, 12, where Jesus tells his disciples, this is my commandment, that you would love one another in the same way that I have loved you. Do not be, verse 2, do not be 12, sorry, Verse 12, do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and who murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. So do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. So John sets up two ways of living here. There's the way of Jesus and the way of Cain. The way of the life giver and the way of the life taker. The one who dies for his friends and the one who kills his brother, the one whose defining characteristic is love and the one whose defining characteristic is hate, the one who is the prince of peace and the one who is the inventor of murder. So how do we know where we stand? How do we know which side we're on? Verse 14, we know that we have passed from death to life, that we've moved from the way of Cain, the way of the world, to the way of Jesus because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, reference to the Sermon on the Mount. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing inside of them. Okay, John, so we know that we are alive in Christ because we love. But what what does that mean? What is love? Real quick, before we go any further, everyone knows John 3.16, right? Like, this is one you've memorized, put on eye black. Um, It's... It's the, the verse that everyone gets tattooed and stuff. Uh, do you think you could say it off the top of your head? All right, I see some nods. We're going to try it. Whatever translation is built into your heart or memorized or whatever version you think you're holding on to, let's try it together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Not bad. Even with the ma- I can see masks wiggling. I can't exactly see who's talking, so I can't assign too many uh, church points. But I I see wiggling masks, and I hear mumbles, so that's pretty good. So that's John 3.16. Here's 1 John 3.16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for others. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And this is how we know what love is. 
But Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. I once heard a preacher say about connections like this, it's almost like the author had help. He did. This is John answering that question about love. A, a quick aside, I saw a comic strip, and I'll, I'll try to find it this week and maybe put it on the church page, but it's this one-panel comic with Jesus arguing with the Pharisees, and Jesus thinks he's figured it out, and he says to the Pharisees, here's where you and I are different. You use the law to define love, and I use love to define the law. I think that's really good. Glad it popped into my head. Uh, so what does it look like to live in this new kind of Jesus love? What does it look like to be alive in Christ? What does it look like to be a child of God? The simple answer, the one we get at a lot, is to imitate Jesus. What did that last verse say? This is how we know what love is, that Christ laid down his life for us. And so we, if you're going to be a love kind of person, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. How do we do that? Verse 17. John's got this all figured out. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and truth. Now, verse 17 seems simple enough, seems clear enough uh, in the NIV, the version that we usually use in the service, the version that's up on the screen right now. But there's actually some dispute about how this verse should be translated. So let's take a look. Uh, so that's the NIV. Let's throw up that next slide. Here's the NLT, the New Living. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need, but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? How about the next one? ESV, English Standard. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Next slide. King James, but whosoever hath the world's good and seeth a brother have need and shutteth up his bowels from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? Something's changed, right? Let's, let's get our list up here. So there's, we've translated this as pity, compassion, heart, and bowels. This is, something weird is happening. <laughs> In this passage, the, the command becomes, do not shut up your bowels to your neighbor, which seems like something you should probably do, right? Especially during a, a time of global pandemic, maybe shut up your bowels uh, towards your neighbor. So let's try to figure out what's going on. The Greek word at play here, let's throw it up here because it's cool to look at the Greek word. The Greek word that we're playing with here is splagnon. Everybody say splagnon. Congratulations, you are now Greek scholars. And on, on Sunday nights, uh, when I do the, the children's stuff online, we often find a word from the original language, Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, and I, I give them a fun word from the section, and I tell them, sneak into your parents' room in the middle of the night and yell it at them. So here's a new one, Splagnon! So you're welcome, families. So Splagnon, 
is often translated in modern English Bibles as heart, uh, sometimes compassion, like here in John 1. But the KJV is actually the most direct translation of this word, uh, of the options that we've looked on, because splagnon is actually this technical medical term. It, it means intestines, entrails, or bowels. Ugh. The word shows up 11 times in the New Testament, and, and it is used as a physiology term uh, a few times to refer to sickness or injury. So we know that they know what the word does. So it's interesting when they use it differently. Like uh, Zechariah in the first chapter of Luke sings a song about the birth of his son. That's John the Baptist. Uh, he sings of God's love and salvation and declares that salvation is on its way from the bowels of God. Frequently we translate that one mercy because it sounds nicer to read that around Christmas. Um, 2 Corinthians 6.12, Paul refers uh, and professes his love for the church at Corinth, saying that he has not withheld his bowels from them. Don't put that in a love letter to your significant other. Uh, again, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 8, Paul, lamenting the distance between him and his friends in Philippi, writes, I long for you with the bowels of Christ. In, in uh, his letter to Philemon, Paul says to Philemon that Philemon has brought him great joy and that his ministry has refreshed the bowels of the people. What in the world is going on here? The bowels of God, the bowels of the people, the bowels of Christ. You've never thought you'd hear bowels this many times in a sermon. I'm not sure I ever thought I would say it this many times in a sermon, or maybe at all. Uh, this doesn't sound like something you heard in your childhood Sunday school class, and it doesn't sound sanitary. Jesus wants me to open my bowels to my neighbor. Now you hear that, and it sounds really weird, really confusing, kind of gross. But check this out. You know exactly what I mean if I say gut reaction. I felt it in my gut. I decided to go with my gut. You know what that means, right? You know that idiom. You know that phrase. It, it, it's something like instinct, something like intuition. Uh, to know something in your gut is that feeling when you just, the core of you knows something before your head figures it out. When you know something deep down, at your very center, at your core, you know it in your gut. This is the same sort of way that the writers of the New Testament are using the word splagnon here. When Christians encounter hurting, depleted, or vulnerable people, our gut reaction, our, our, our gut response should be one of Christ-like love. So let's bring that idea back to verse 17 and 18. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need and their gut reaction is not love, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with just words, with religious talk, or, or with speech, with just sermons. That's directed directly at people like me. Uh, I don't get off the hook in this one. But with actions and truth. Let's not love with words or speech, but with actions and truth. Let's not be people who just talk about love. Let's be people for whom love is our gut reaction, our instinct, our very intuition. 
For many of us, just like the Christians that John is writing to in the sermon almost 2,000 years ago, our faith often becomes cerebral. It becomes a mental exercise about saying and believing the right things, about making the right theological arguments on social media, about subscribing to the right isms, about saying and claiming and defending and winning and knowing and being right. Our Christianity becomes so much about being right that we forget about doing right. It seems like John might have had access to the book of James, or at least the ideas. Does this ring a bell for you? This comes out of uh, verse 17 of James. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes or daily food. If any of you says to them, go in peace. That's a nice Christian greeting and blessing. Religious talk. Go in peace. Stay warm and well fed. But does nothing about their physical needs? What good is your blessing. In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by actions, is dead. Maybe you have accepted Jesus into your heart, but you still need to let him into your gut. When was the last time a preacher told you to accept Jesus into your bowels? Um, Sorry. Jesus is not exclusively concerned with what happens to your soul when you die. Jesus seems as concerned with life before death as life after. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes the assumption that his followers will be people who act in service through an overflowing abundance of love. He tells them not to make a big deal out of it when. He says when, not if. He says when you give, when you serve, not if you decide to. Uh, He says when you serve others... Do it so as to not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. That to live in the way of Jesus is to have your entire identity transformed in such a way, to such an extent that sacrificial love towards others becomes so natural that, you just do, that your right hand could do it without your left hand knowing, that you could do these things without thinking about it because your gut reaction has been transformed to that of Jesus. What would Jesus' gut reaction be? That's going to be yours. That's sort of like a WWJD on steroids. What would Jesus' bowels do? No, I won't wear that on bracelet. Um, the Christian life is about allowing Jesus to transform your identity and to be so conformed to Christ that you act intrinsically out of love, instinctually out of love, impulsively out of love. To allow Jesus to save not only your soul, but to save your gut. To allow Jesus to replace your instincts with his, your intuition with his, your gut with his. Now, there there are two sides to this process, and it is a process. None of this just happens for people. Obviously, it doesn't come naturally to us. Otherwise, we wouldn't need to be told by the Bible so many times to do this kind of stuff. So there's two parts to this, and here's some churchy language for you. Um, there's this term that we like called sanctification. It's, uh, you, you've probably heard someone say that before, maybe you've read it, maybe a preacher has said it, or a Sunday school teacher, and you just say, I'm like, yeah, that's a nice church word. Um, sanctification is that work that the Holy Spirit does inside of you, that, that process of the Holy Spirit entering your life and conforming 
your way of living to that of Jesus's. Now, don't get, don't get confused here. It is that profession of faith. It is that faith in Christ that saves you, but that faith is that first step that invites the Holy Spirit into your life. And then that, that accepting, we use that language of accept Jesus. Uh, that accepting has to keep going. Um, you accept the work that the Spirit does in your life. You let down your guard. You give room for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to change you. Because if you let God change you, God is going to change you. All we got to do is get out of the way. So sanctification is, is one side of that coin. It's the work that the Spirit does in us to change our gut. And then there's the, the other side of this process. Here's another churchy word, uh, is discipleship. And that, that's the work that we do on ourselves. This is done in community when we gather to study and to pray and to work and to learn. Uh, this is the, the time spent in Scripture. How are you going to imitate Jesus if you don't know what he said and did? This is the work of worship, finding time to be, and not just finding, finding is the wrong word, that's too passive, making time to be in the presence of God, because it's that proximity that's going to change us. It's these encounters that are going to transform us. It's praying in such a way as to, to say, God, and this is prayer of courage, having the courage to pray in such a way as to say, God, I want more of you and less of me. I want more of my bowels uh, tra bowel transplant. That is a terrible phrase. I want more of my bowels transplanted with yours. And, and then there's, there's just straight up practice. You practice being like Jesus. You work at this new foreign behavior of sacrificial love, and it becomes more natural. You learn these responses of immediate gut level, gut reaction, gut feeling, service and sacrifice and love jesus wants to save and transform all of you not just your soul not just your heart not just your head your guts too jesus cares about life before death at least as much as life after death the work of righteous of setting things right the work of justice of restoring the world and creating a better one for people to live in Th these are essential callings in the life of the church and the life of christians and so the, the the invitation is to make more room for christ in that deep core level of who you are of your ethics, your decision-making, your worldview, the way you see people, the way you think about yourself, the way you think about your possessions, everything has to change at this gut level that when you encounter kingdom opportunities that you don't miss them because you're ready. That gut reaction is there, and it's that of Jesus. Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord, we want more of you. I, I pray today for the, for the courage to, to get out of the way, to, to let my ego be diminished in such a way as to make more room for you in, 
in, in not churchy terms, in real concrete ways. I want more Jesus in my, in my life, in my heart, in my head, in my guts. We ask that you would give us the courage to let you transform us as a community, as individuals, as a church, into a community of people ready to act, ready for righteousness, ready for justice, that our gut reactions would be transformed, that we would be conformed to you to such an extent that there would be no question about how we respond because our response was love before the question was even asked. We know that that's you, that we, that is unnatural, that is weird, that our guts are never going to be okay with that. We pray for your transformation in our lives. Help us get out of the way and let you keep saving us. We love you and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.